1: I'm sorry. I'm going to need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus. The Bulbous Walrus. The name your price tool. Only from
0: Progressive. The and ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain.
1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
0: This is Jenna Burt, host of the Confessions of a Military Spouse podcast. Thanks for listening to the following broadcast on Public Health Media. Disarming Disability. <laughs>
2: Oh, hello, and welcome back to Disarming Disability. My name is Nicole Kelly. And
0: I'm Sarah Tupperty.
2: Sarah, we need an update on your fruit flies, please. Okay, <laughs> da, la, 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 la. I think they're managed. Um,
0: it, you know what, I, um, last time I talked, there was definitely an infestation. It was pretty um, gnarly.
2: Yeah, and for those I of started- you, I'm so sorry to interrupt, for those of you who missed, fruit flies were the thing and in, in not a good way in Sarah's life. Okay, sorry, go on. Not a good way in Sarah's life.
0: Correct. Very correct. Um I was uh you know what this is actually kind of I have two embarrassing stories af- associated with my fruit flies. Um I put up all these fruit traps every I'm sorry, the fruit fly traps, like the the sticky things. What are they? Those like sticky things that you hang from the ceiling? Yeah. So I had, like, four of those in my room just to try to manage everybody. Um, and I was cleaning underneath one of them, and I forgot that it was hanging above me. So then I just spent four minutes trying to peel out this, like, sticky goo thing from my bun. And I just was like, why am I here? Um And then I had to go wash my hair immediately and put peanut butter in it, which actually was very helpful because I was like, great, now how am I supposed to get all this goo out of my hair? Um, So that was fun. After that, I was like, this is, we got to, we got to change. And then, uh, yeah, so that actually, we'll just share that one story. Uh, So at that point, I took all of my plants out. I kicked everybody out of my room. I repotted all of them and then I brought them back in. They stayed in quarantine for a little minute. I kind of monitored everybody to make sure that there were no more fruit flies that I brought into my space. I got a cool fruit fly, like a tractor trap, which was great. Um, so the sticky things are gone. And then of course, uh, since I was repotting plants anyway, I had to go out and buy three more plants. So now I have an orchid. So we'll see if that if I can keep that alive. Uh, it's purple. It's beautiful. Uh, and then I got this big plant that looks they have like these big leaves that kind of look like lily pad leaves but it's in a pot it doesn't live in the in the water it's got these big stems and it's just got these massive kind of heart-shaped leaves that are you know like maybe seven inches by like five inches or so so they're beautiful and then um I got another fiddle leaf plant which can become a tree and I'm so excited for it so yes um fruit flies are no more um but I will keep you
2: updated I am so glad to hear you are fruitful, fruitful, leaflet, fruit fly free. Mm-hmm. I, this week, and one of my plants um, noticed, I was like, there was something like bright yellow kind of in the, the center in between different stems. And I was like, weird, what's that? And as I zoomed up, like real close on it, they were tiny, itty bitty, bright yellow mushrooms. And I was like, right. And I was like, internet, what the heck? I live inside. What What is happening? And But... Apparently, what I've learned after I asked the internet is it's actually rather um, pretty common. These these bright yellow, tiny mushrooms just somehow with multiple plants being in the room and with people moving around and different stuff happening that, yes, randomly you will get yellow mushrooms. So I have to work on digging those out. But um, they are full on mushrooms in my random plant. Cute. Um, cool.
0: Great. Okay. So. Uh, so we are going to continue our deep dive into our sexuality chapter. Um, we had our first episode last week that really kind of talked a lot about um, just sexuality and disability. And so we're really excited to continue on that conversation for this week. So we're happy that you're here joining us. And and this is just an incredibly important topic. Um, and I feel like this is one of the big barriers that... Um, people are facing in in the disability community that sort of like really reduces people down to being less than human right i think the the importance of being able to have relationships and being able to have like intimate connections to people is is part of the human experience and i just feel that if we're really limiting people on on what we think they can or can't do or or who they can be or who they can be with then like like, I don't know. I feel like those are the things that we really need to challenge ourselves and really open our brains to um, because that's what makes us humans and, and people with disabilities are humans.
2: Let's, yeah, let's do it. Very well said. And yeah, let's hop into the bio of our amazing guest for this week. Dr. Amanda Tajin minored in sexuality and gender studies at the University of Michigan and continued to bridge into clinical and research work in sexuality and disability once she entered into her master's and doctoral work at the Illinois Institute of Technology. Now, as a faculty member at the University of Arizona, her research looks mostly on sexual behavior and the competency amongst counselors who work with persons with disabilities with regards to various forms of sexuality, such as pleasure, bodily function, access, dating, norms, safety, and simply talking about sex. Amanda has created and teaches a course on sexuality and disability, which bridges basic human sexuality information with specifics of disability. To read Amanda's full bio, check out the season two episode 14 page on Disarming Disabilities website. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Welcome. How is your day today?
1: Thanks for having me. Um, So far, it's still morning here, late morning, I would say, in Arizona, but worked, ran, you know, did the usual kind of things to get my day going. I'm very excited to be talking with both of you. This is a topic I get to cover in snippets when I'm, you know, in my day-to-day job at the University of Arizona. So it's nice to be able to talk about some of the things that I've done in practice, and research, and that really kind of piqued my interest and got me going and actually landed me in this field. So it's exciting to be talking to you guys.
2: Thank your Brain. Um, Yeah. Can you talk to us then a little bit about your history and how you kind of ended up landing where you've landed and maybe what your interest in specifically uh, kind of cornering in on some disability topics, like where that came from too?
1: Sure. So... I fell into disability-related stuff, actually. Um, When I was an undergrad, I went to the University of Michigan. I was a psych major, and I took a class on the sociology of sexuality. And I loved it, and I ended up creating my own minor. um, And my minor became sex and gender studies, and I loved it. But then when I got into graduate school um, for my master's degree in rehabilitation counseling at Illinois Institute of Technology... I had no idea what rehabilitation really meant. I applied to the program as a backup because it had more of a medical spin. And I come from a family of a lot of medical practitioners. And I thought, well, I was going to go to med school and I fell into this. And I don't know, it seemed like a fit. And then it didn't seem like a fit for like the first semester. I wavered around, had no idea what I was in for. Couldn't really totally grasp this idea of, Things being disability centric and the big D, disability, like that big Mm -hmm. umbrella term, it was kind of overwhelming for me, especially as somebody who really loved diagnosis and Mm -hmm. pulling away from medical models. That was really jarring and different. But then when I got into my first practicum, which is when I got to work with clients for the first time, my first ever client was a woman who was probably in her, I don't know, Early 40s, who had an intellectual disability, a psychiatric disability, and a hearing impairment. And luckily, I took sign language instead of Spanish when I was an undergrad. So that worked in my favor. Who knew? Um, but she would cry all of the time and she kept talking constantly about wanting to have a baby, but that she couldn't. And something clicked where I realized I was in this very clinical role trying to support somebody. And these big, scary topics like eugenics and sexuality and uh, parentification became very salient. And I had this moment in my supervision meeting and I said to my instructor, well, this just makes no sense and I'm frustrated and I know that I can handle it because I know the background on this stuff. Can I dive in? And he said, I mean, I guess this is kind of like big stuff for a first year student, but have at it. And come to find out, this woman was the guardian of the state. And she had no idea that she was being given Depo-Provera, which is you know monthly birth control. And I had to really run that line of managing my own belief structure with what was in the best interest of the client and providing her with education around her body, what this drug actually did, why she was being given it. And I just had this epiphany moment of, wait my psych background, my background in sexuality, this is a thing. This is already hitting me in the face. I'm sure this will continue. And it did. And it continued in my clinical practice, working with people with spinal cord injury, people with intellectual disabilities, autism spectrum disorder, parents, um, other practitioners. And as I got into my doctorate and started looking at research, I thought, well, we're all rehabilitation counselors. We're supposed to know these things. And then I had this sinking feeling of, oh, wait, I don't think we actually do. And not only do we not know it, we're not comfortable talking about it. And I wanted to look at comfort plus knowledge, plus would people even do it? Because as a practitioner, I thought, well, who am I going to refer to? I can't refer every client to myself. Mm -hmm. That just isn't going to work. And so I've, I've it kind of all came together naturally and very organically and I just haven't let it go. And the funny thing is when I was an undergrad, my interest in sexuality had nothing to do with disability, but it had everything to do with function and pleasure and why people do what they do and how they learn about these things and experimentation coming into their own. And I found that once I pulled in that disability lens, those questions and that interest became magnified because this was a large group of people who didn't have the same access as every other neurotypical able-bodied normal quote unquote person. And I thought, well, this makes no sense and I don't like it. And so I'm going to ruffle feathers. And that's kind of how I ended up here. And I haven't really let it go. And I don't think I ever will
2: we need you. Yes,
0: (laughs) we do. And it's and it's so important and so necessary. And and I know in my own life and my own narrative, right? Like I Um, believed that I was broken. Like, I believed that there was something wrong with me. So it's like, why would anyone want to be with me? And I remember being, like, so dramatic and, like, 14, listening to, like, Maroon 5 in my bedroom, just, like, crying, being like, I will never be loved. And, like, um, just really, really feeling those things. Because, like, why would anyone want to be with me if they could be with somebody who has two hands, right? And um, just, like, really believing those things as a 14-year-old is rough.
1: Yeah. I mean, kids are, I didn't really, so kids to this day as a practitioner, they freak me out. It's a really sensitive (laughs) group of people and there's parental involvement. And what I found is it's like, you have to take both perspectives into account. Otherwise you're missing something because you really do need the parent buy-in because they might not have the same experience as the kid who has the disability and experiences those nuances that the parent may or may not experience at all. And and even if they're experiencing it, they're experiencing it from a parent's lens, which is mm-hmm. typically very protective. And it really brings up these ideas – not ideas, myths, I would say – about who should have access to what, what that looks like. I mean, you talk about the idea of love and will I be loved and am I worthy of compared to somebody who has something that you don't have? And yet, you know, the idea is, shouldn't we all have access to the same things in some capacity regardless? And where do we shift those barriers? Because there's a real reality in those barriers. When I worked with kids who have autism, they're missing social cues and social norms. Mm -hmm. And parents are going, well, I don't want my kid to end up in a dangerous situation. And it doesn't matter because they'll never have an opportunity to date. Well, this isn't just about sex and physicality. This is about human connection and what that means. And just because it looks a certain way or is scripted for one group of people doesn't mean it looks like that for everybody. That's just how boring is that?
2: How boring is that? And mm-hmm. you're like that kind of veer of a seed is speaking directly to something that I rant about a lot. Um, parent perspective being so different than the child's experience. And, um, you know, I think, I think exactly what you said and kind of having to have the parent buy into the experience and trying to get them to understand is a huge barrier and can be a huge barrier. Um, not that that, parents' opinion shouldn't be respected, but, um, just know that there are a lot of conversations also kind of in the disability political community that, that are having those conversations also, and, and hopefully ways to kind of wake up the parents, um, to to big D disability ideas much sooner, and the fact that that can be okay, and the fact that you're right, like that would be so boring if everyone is the same, but what are your options, and who are the experts that you're looking to to help you kind of guide and make those decisions, and, and to change those ideas? Um, yes, I don't know if that made sense, but I felt like it also needed to be said. <laughs> um, uh, so can you tell me, um, here I'm going, Back down. So you kind of started to talk about it, surprised you that this woman, she herself, who you first kind of had your connection into the disability community with, didn't know that she was on birth control. So, what can you talk to me maybe a little deeper or talk to us a little bit deeper about how did you navigate? kind of, yeah, your professional role and kind of being the medical advocate, but also the educator, but also how how did you, how did you kind of silo those different things and actually move through those issues? Does that question make
1: sense? Yeah, totally. And truth be told, at the time, I think I was like, I don't know, I finished my master's degree when I was 23. So I must've been 22. And my experience with disability was very narrow and very specific. Mm -hmm. So this was like, Well, I'm going to figure it out. And frankly, I still have that perspective today about a lot of things. I'll just figure it out. It'll be fine as long as I, you know, keep certain parameters in mind. I knew that I had to be really careful with her because of the guardianship issue. Mm -hmm. Um, So it didn't matter so much what my opinion was and it didn't matter what i did in terms of advocacy outside of helping her ask questions to her case manager so i knew i had an in because i knew who the players were mm-hmm. and the other part of this just to keep in mind is we're talking about three disabilities and those disabilities intersecting mm-hmm. and intersectionality is a very real thing none of us are one facet of anything we all have many facets and how those facets intersect, make us who we are. And for her, her disabilities made her a very complex person in that, in fact, her case manager didn't use sign language. Mm -hmm. So things that I ended up relying on had to do very basically with who can she talk to and how can she talk to them And then the third big piece was, what questions could she ask where she could actually start to understand what was going on and why? Because for her, Mm -hmm. remember, it was, I want a baby. It didn't matter Mm -hmm. if she had a partner. It didn't matter if she had the means to provide for an infant. It didn't matter about housing. Like, all of those foundational basic needs that we all have, those things weren't on her radar. They weren't on her radar for herself. And they weren't on her radar for another person. So this was super simple about really her own body and her own autonomy in some of these decisions. And at the very least, somebody needed to say to her, well, in fact, you don't have this autonomy and this is why. Mm -hmm. And so what we ended up doing was siloing in that way and looking at communication and who to communicate with first. And so it started with actually her supervisor at her day program, which is where I was working, And, hey, can we have access to her case manager through the state? And then, Mm -hmm. hey, can we have access to her physician? And I pushed and I was a nagging, you know, practicum student of, well, I don't know the rules. I kind of played stupid a little bit because sometimes you have to do things that work in your favor to advocate for your client Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. I knew the answer was going to be, no, you can't talk to the physician unless there's consent from the state. And so Mm -hmm. I was savvy and I helped her to ask questions about, it was really about what is this medication and what does it do to my body so that she Mm -hmm. could start to make those baby steps to understand what that looked like. And mind you, this is a really small example of things I came across. I worked with several other people with intellectual disabilities in particular, where it wasn't about birth control and Uh, physical autonomy, but it was about autonomy with regards to engaging in sex practices Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. managing money and condom use. And why had no one gone over safe sex practices when we knew for a fact that a lot of the men that we were working with at this agency were taking their very small stipend of money and finding sex workers and not using protection. And that's a problem and that's a barrier and we know it's happening and yet we're not having conversations about that. There are some just very basic things that should happen. And so I don't know if that answers your question. I think it's put me into a little bit of a rabbit hole of, I think I just got frustrated enough to know that I think I said, well, what would I want if I were in her shoes? I just Mm -hmm. wanted some answers. She just wanted answers. She wanted clarity. And As a woman and somebody who experiences, you know, getting a period and having dealt with birth control myself, that's a frustrating process for any woman in a lot of ways, let alone somebody who doesn't know what they're being given or why. It's like... Mm -hmm if I said to anybody, okay, I'm going to medicate you. I'm not going to tell you for what, for why, but you're just going to take it. What would your response be? And everybody looks at me like, are you out of your mind, Amanda? I would never let that happen. And that's my catch. That's my point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it does happen. It did happen. It happened right in front of me. And I couldn't, I, I couldn't let that just happen without her having knowledge or at least being able to say, you know what? I don't like this or tell me why this is happening.
0: Or let's work through like medical options just because I see that like maybe, maybe the. Br- so hypothetically, maybe the birth control was the best option for her. I, I don't know, whatever. But um, so let's say maybe that was the best option, but she doesn't, she's not in that space where she gets to choose that best option for herself, right? Right. That like, even if healthcare professionals know that like, okay, ultimately, like this is going to work best for this person's situation. I still think it's like giving that agency. And and I know in occupational therapy, I, I went to school to be an occupational therapist. I just graduated from my program. We talk about self-determination a lot and mm-hmm. sort of like people being able to make their own decisions. In in and make the decisions they can um, with the information that's delivered to them or, or communicated to them in a way that is accessible for them. Whether that's like physically the language itself, but also like using words um, that are um, accessible for people, regardless of sort of where um, you know their their um, cognition is, I suppose. Um, but that it's really important for people to be able to make decisions for themselves um, as much as they can, right? And I know that maybe that takes longer or maybe, you know, we, we have to slow down or think differently to be able to communicate things in a way for that to happen. But I believe that that's so important. Um, and I know in occupational therapy, we talk a lot about choice and sort of like using that in our therapies too.
1: Yeah, I mean, I never got, when I started later in my career, um, I had already gotten my associate level license. I want to say I was in my first or second year of my PhD at this point. I was working at a therapeutic day school and there were uh, two schools meant for kids who had emotional and behavioral disorders, some more psychiatric related things. But then we had one school that was really intended for kids who were all on the autism spectrum. And the psychologist who ran that program is a genius. She's brilliant. Her name is Charlotte Edwards. I respect her implicitly. She really shapes my perspective on autism and really how to work with the whole system. And when I say system, I mean all people who are involved in working with a kid who has ASD. And she kind of said, we've got these kids, they engage in these behaviors, and the communication and social barriers make it really challenging. Is there a way you can provide sex education to the parents and the kids in a way that's salient and meaningful and makes sense? And I think that, like what you said, reminds me of, it doesn't really matter how we communicate it. It matters that we do it in a way that's appropriate for the individual that we're working with. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true, both from a paternalism standpoint and working with guardians about their perspectives and opinions about their child who may have a disability, but also making sure that language, and frankly, language gets you halfway, really beneficial, even for adults, even without disabilities. Like, it's amazing. I I did a a presentation on called it the bi-directionality of assistive technology and sex. I was really talking about sex toys and the idea of pleasure, but I had to make it sound very academic for it to be accepted, right? Because that's kind of a out there topic, but it's amazing that you can take these technologies and it kind of speaks to universal design, but how you describe what they look like and what options there are comes across far better in a picture than it does using words. And I found that mm-hmm. that's really true for certain groups of people when we're talking about not just sexist pleasure, not just your body as your body and autonomy and agency, but communication around these topics and just kind of learning to digest. Nobody learns in one singular way. That's not universal at all. And in fact, we all take in information really differently. And it's about matching the person, matching the parent, and trying to get everybody as closely on the same page as possible so that things like agency and self-advocacy become tangible and real versus perpetuating myths and lack of resources and access. And I think that that's what happens when we don't have these more open dialogues about things like sex.
0: Can you speak a little bit on, and I know that this was um, a research article that came up particularly in um, people with disabilities that we're doing like outdoor type activities. So it's this like theory or this concept or or this like stigma, I suppose that people with disabilities have risky bodies and then they're engaging in risky activities and we can't let people, you know, do risky things um, because they have these risky bodies, but, but then we're denying them the same risk opportunities that other people are able to, to engage in that perhaps are more able-bodied. So that makes me think of just sort of that, that, talk about, um, like, consent and, like, risk in consent. Um, Can you speak a little bit on that as far as the things that you've experienced and, like, learned um, and sort of, like, developing perspectives around um, what consent looks like?
1: Sure. And, you know, like, this might sound like a little bit of a smart-alecky response to your question. I don't mean it directed Mm -hmm. at you, but I'm a professor. I work on a college campus. There are 40,000 undergrads at this campus, and I went to Michigan, big undergrad campus, lots of tailgates. I would argue an able-bodied typical undergrad is in a more risky situation with regards to consent than most people with disability who have, again, that quote unquote risky body, risky environment, risky, et cetera, Mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. I think that consent is something that frankly impacts every single person who engages in any type of romantic, physical, emotional type of situation. Consent isn't just about sex as a physical thing, right? It's about exposure to our emotions and our bodies and what that means and looks like. Um, My feeling on consent is that it should be something, and I've gotten a lot of pushback with this being in Arizona with school systems, but The younger we start with education around what consent means and how we consent and that consent is revocable, um, Mm -hmm. the better that often is for everybody, regardless of disability with disability, without, because then there's practice involved in it. And it doesn't have to be about sex per se, but it's about engaging in certain activities even, right? The idea of asking, may I do to somebody if they're the authority figure, And the authority figure having, you know, some room to say, actually, no, you can't or yes, you can. And here's why. If we're going to do it, it's going to look like this. Um, I think when we put disability into the mix, the idea is not just to give somebody the language to understand what consent means and what it looks like, but it's to have practice in doing so. Because I think the challenge is the lack of access to practice those skills makes it A little bit more distant for a lot of people who have disabilities who may or may not even want to be engaging in those types of situations where consent is relevant. Um, I think the challenge with disability is the idea is, well, consent's not necessary because they're not going to be engaging in it. And that's the fundamental myth and problem Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because I can't tell you one person that I've worked with who has a disability doesn't have an urge to do something. And by something, I even mean consent. And this is a kind of not great example, but there's a little bit of almost consenting with yourself to know and love your own body and touch your own body. And I can't tell you how many women I've worked with and they've never seen their own vagina. Like Mm -hmm. that's wild to me. And yet that's a very real thing for many people with or without disability. Um, Mm -hmm. and so this idea of, Consent needs to be a larger conversation with everybody about what your body is and what parts of your body are sacred or safe or shouldn't be exposed or can't be exposed, or you have choice around that versus yes to sex or no to sex. That's not that's not consent. That's not consent for anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I found in, especially certain populations with regards to disability, is we just don't even go there period because, again, it's not going to happen, so why talk about it? And I think that's the biggest mistake ever. It's kind of like the idea of, well, they're never going to work, so let's just do this. But that makes that's not true either, right? That totally fundamentally goes against the Rehabilitation Services Administration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People have a right to, at the very least, attempt to be independent and work mm-hmm. and participate in everything and anything that anybody should have access to. Education is another one. Just because it looks different doesn't mean it shouldn't be so.
2: Right? That, is, that is beautiful. Just because it looks different doesn't mean that it shouldn't be so. Yes. Yeah. I'm wondering what um, I'm a very black and white thinker and and I think in steps, what um, what do you kind of see as the big broad stroke steps that we need to take in order to kind of move society forward? in a way where these stigmas are kind of falling away and we are able to openly engage in, in the conversation around sex and disability and consent and autonomy and all of, all of these things. How, how, how do we move forward into that?
1: So I'm a little bit in a silo because I'm on a college campus where we have a pretty killer disability resources center. Um, And that's, super cool. And I would say we're lucky. And that's not the case throughout the whole country. There are some schools um, in the Midwest in particular, who have some really cool programs, and they do really incredible things. But sometimes the landscape dictates that sometimes the political climate of where you're at dictates that. Um, you know, there was a big shift and this speaks more to politics around what was going on around 2016 and people reacting and sensitivity levels skyrocketing and this idea of minority groups standing ground and so on and so forth and it's interesting to me that you have a majority group like literally the biggest minority group is disability as a whole right Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. yet I don't I'm hearing so much of a voice from that particular group with regards to politics and things like this. And I don't mean this in a joking way, but the idea of coming together regardless of those differences. So again, parsing out those fragments of intersectionality and bringing them together, but saying, hey, we are a big group, I think is a step in the right direction. I think that there is Um, some great opportunity with regards to technology. So Instagram, Snapchat, all of these modalities that I think can go in the opposite direction and actually be really detrimental to people's functioning and support. And they can be really scary platforms because people can just spew whatever they want in response to what you post. But there Mm -hmm. is this idea that we can publicize something that looks different and looks different. That's great. And shows where something was really challenging and yet somebody did it. Um, And I think that's a place to start, frankly. Um, And I don't Mm -hmm. think that this Mm conversation is ever going to go away. And I don't think there will ever be equal footing. I don't think that there's equal footing on many issues or topics Mm -hmm. that, you know, when we talk about sex, I can tell you that there's still not equal footing with regards to how we even view normalized sexual behavior. And the joke is, I always tell people, you want some stats to kind of blow your mind If you look at people who engage in BDSM, from a psychological standpoint, they actually screen as being more stable and healthy than somebody who's not engaging in those risky, scary, odd behaviors. So I think the first part is getting messages out there that are challenging and show the opposite of what that lay perspective is or what that stereotype looks like. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. The second thing is coming together from a big agency standpoint. And what I mean by that is, again, I'm spoiled. I'm lucky. I have a great disability resources center. Well, that disability resources center does a lot more work when they partner with public health, for example. And mm-hmm. so and sexual health trainings aren't just, you know, to the general, you know, sorority and fraternity or whatever populations we deem as riskier. It's to everybody. In fact, um, I Speak in a human sexuality class, and it's the foundational level course because we wanted to pull disability into the mix. Knowing that we actually have a lot of students who do have disabilities, and they don't get the specific knowledge that might pertain to their bodies and the issues they're coming across. So there are some really small, simple changes. If every human sexuality instructor, if every you know sex ed instructor from eighth grade through graduate school included a chapter, a dialogue something on disability can you imagine how many people that would impact just at a like basic level like that's a lot of people everyone wants to take human sexuality it's a fun course
0: yeah yeah yes so
1: I think broad stroke is to get in where you can and ruffle feathers not be afraid to do so and I understand that that takes a lot of courage but I think until I should say this backwards. Everyone has the question. They don't want to ask it. So what's a safe place to ask it? Or what's a place Mm -hmm. where you can broadcast the answer without somebody having to just like, hi, but I do have the question. So (laughs) I I think it goes both ways. And frankly, the responsibility is on us. If you have the knowledge, it's kind of your job to share it. Even if people don't want to hear it, at least it gives Mm -hmm. them something to think
0: about. I, or just being like, this is a conversation that we need to have. Like, hey, we've recorded this episode on our podcast, right? And I know that like this isn't all inclusive of all of the things we need to talk about. There's millions of things that we didn't get to cover on this episode. But just being like, hey, this is something that we all need to talk about in the world.
2: Right. And it's there's uh, just kind of, I 1,000% agree with all of the things that you said. And you touched on a lot of, I feel like, really um, a, a lot of nuances that we talk about a lot I mean Sarah and I have had hours long of conversation talking about social media and how how you know this really is the first time where we are able to give messaging about ourselves to kids who are younger than us and what a responsibility that is and so how do we know that we're giving the right messages because really we were raised as able-bodied people and that internalized ableism is something we're still trying to come to terms with but you know but still like how do we give the correct messaging and connect with those people and use it use it in the right way but also that's a lot of responsibility and then you know getting actively involved with the political um things that may be going on in our areas uh you know i actively am and just understanding that like what you said the disability community is is so many different shades and how do we all get onto one page and get active on one page and really push together um on one platform uh it's just it's a lot of big questions, but I feel like there's I feel like there's hope in the things that we were saying just because they're these are the conversations that at least I feel like I'm having. So if I'm having them, hopefully other people are trying to have them or trying to seek out the answers or trying to find the people who are doing that work. Or, you know, I I feel like, um, I don't know. I'm trying to feel hopeful, I guess is, is the ending of what I'm saying. (laughs) Totally. And I think
1: hope is a really good place to kind of round out. The other thing I would say is, I don't know that we all have to be on the same page necessarily, but it is a, it should be, in my opinion, and an, and an opinion is an opinion, but my opinion is you don't have to agree with me. You don't have to mm-hmm. like what I said, but I ask that you listen, not just that you hear me, but that you listen and I'll do the same. And I think if we all took a stance of actually listening to each other, whether change happens or not, it's kind of inevitable because then there's at least safe space for those messages to be sent versus mm-hmm. a blockade before the message is even being heard.
0: Right. Right. Well, I'd love that.
2: Well, thank you so, so much for joining us. This has been such an amazing conversation. Um, you just like have, you have such knowledge and for real, I, I wish we could pick your brain for forever, but um, I'm sure this won't be the end, hopefully of a relationship here. And, and really just thank you so much for bringing your expertise um, to the table for us today. It's really appreciated.
1: Oh my gosh. Thank it- you. This was so much fun. I, This is a blast. I really liked it. This is great to talk about this stuff. And I agree. I would love to continue this relationship with you guys.
2: Thank you so much. And hopefully we'll talk again soon.
0: Okay. Sounds good. Bye. Thank you for spending part of your day with us. We want to give thanks to our network, Public House Media, for our intro beats to Jason Bards with Cybernetics,
2: our local art, we want to remember Patrice. You can find his work at normalpersons.com. Be sure to follow Disarming Disability on Facebook and Instagram. And lastly, be sure to check out our website, disarmingdisability.com, where you can find all 13 episodes of season one, links to resources, transcriptions, and discussion questions for each episode. And check out our blog where we feature amazing disability advocates. See you next week. Bye. Bye.